0: So, uh, my name is Nick. I'll be, (laughs) I'll be bringing us God's word here this morning. Um, momentarily. I, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Merry Christmas to y'all. I mean, Starbucks is playing the music. Uh, we're doing Advent. I guess I could start saying Merry Christmas. Uh, it's what it is really my favorite time of the year. I enjoy it. Uh, I love what it does. Um, Uh, for us culturally. Uh, I love what it does even in the church and just how it it, it forces us to remember uh, some of those core truths um, that we hold dear but can often in the mix of life uh, forget. So um, but with that we're going to be, I'm not doing like a Christmas series necessarily. Uh, I will be doing a a special sermon for us on December 22nd but this morning we're going to carry on in Luke's gospel. Uh, we 're in Luke chapter eighteen verses nine through fourteen so if you need a Bible, raise your hand we 'll get one to you and uh, if you don 't own a Bible as always, we say just you know feel free to keep uh, keep that it 's yours um, if you know someone you want to give it away too. Our job as a church really we see is to uh, spread the um, the Word of God abroad, so uh, feel free to keep and give um, It would be great but we 're in Luke chapter eighteen verses 9 through 14 it's really an amazing text um, and I can't wait to dive into it with you but let's read it I'll pray and then we'll get we'll get moving for the morning (coughs) he uh, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but instead beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray guys. God, even now, I want to take the posture of humility, recognizing, Lord, that you look to those not who um, puff up their chest, (laughs) to those who can put on a good performance, but you look to those who tremble at your word. You look to those who come underneath it. And that's really where we are this morning, God. We, We want to hear from you. We want your word to be over us. Your word to be, in a sense, at the same time, a rock underneath us. God, we want to build everything we do upon what you have to say. And God, I know that there are many in this room who come in, in some ways, this morning, um, feeling unrest, feeling disquiet in the soul, feeling uh, uneasy. Noisy, the static. God, we we ask right now that as we gather around the scriptures together, as we gather around the cross once more, that you would pierce through. We pray that you would you would you would uh, get through the noise, and you'd you'd touch our hearts. You'd open our eyes. You'd reorganize our thinking and affections and feelings, God. We don't need to get everything done on our list. We don't need to have, uh, you know, life going the way that we want. We don't need everyone to look in and see and praise us. Lord, what we need more than anything this morning is to see you, is to have an encounter with the living God, see his glory, in particular the glory of his grace as manifested in the cross of Christ. So I'm praying. I'm praying what we prayed in the back earlier before the service, that though many may come in this room this morning, sinners, even perhaps condemned, I pray that we would all go home with this tax collector justified in Christ. I pray you'd help me in Jesus' name. Amen. Um we are Not right. We're not right. Um, We all feel it. We all know it. There's something in us that kind of, there's some sort of unrest, uneasiness that doesn't go away. We may not admit that we're not right, that things aren't right, but we feel it. We know it deep down. Something is off. I I was um, reminded of this actually in a sort of uh, backdoor sort of way this last week, or I guess it was the the week of Thanksgiving when I was reading a book, actually, that the leader of our Mercy Hill women team, uh, Debbie Griego, gave me to or at least let me borrow to read with our kids And I'm actually, this is my own copy. I'm going to give it away to one of you, maybe after the service, if you're interested. Um, It's a kid's book. Uh, It's called Blotch. And the story, it really is just about this kid who notices that he and 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 everyone else has all these spots all over him uh, and all over them and every time they uh, did something bad in word or thought or deed you know another spot another stain would appear and it troubled him it it, it it bothered him. And he was talking to his parents around the table one night. He says, I want to figure out a solution. I want to know, does anybody have the answer to these stains, to these spots, to these blotches? I want to go leave our village and see if someone out there has the answer. So me and my uh, girls were it's the first fire that we had in the fireplace for the season we lit a fire and we got the lights down low and Levi was around kind of listening in as well and we're we're reading this story as this kid is going out on this sort of adventure to see what do I do about this that doesn't seem right it doesn't seem okay is there an answer and he goes to different villages Uh, The first village that he comes to, uh, there are these people where at first he's amazed because he doesn't see the spots on them. But then a rainstorm comes and he realizes, oh, shoot, it's just makeup. And underneath, it's all the same. There are these people that try to hide the stains, hide the spots, put a good coat of, you know, whatever on top. And then we will look all right. But inside, nothing's changed at all. It's not... Solution—it's superficial, it's insufficient—and so he moves on to another village where uh, these people simply ignored or denied the reality of the stains. It's just normal. What? What? What stains? We don't even see them. This is just how we are. We don't. We don't talk about this being off or wrong. We don't want to delve into that reality. That would just make for uneasy conversation. Let's not go there. And there are people in yet another village. He moves on and... Um, He comes to this town where there's like this street running through uh, the the, the town. And and on either side, people have kind of separated themselves. And when he asks, why, what's going on with this? He realizes that they're all blaming the other side of the street for the stains. So you've got people who have approached the problem by trying to hide. You've got people who've approached the problem by uh, trying to deny or pretend it's not there. And then you've got these other people who want to blame everyone else for the spots and the stains. And there's this war waging in this village. They did it. No, you did it. No, they did it. And back and forth and back and forth it goes, accusing one another. And then the little boy, just when he'd lost all hope of ever finding a solution to the stains, when he just kind of passes out there in the street just in sorrow, he meets the king, the king of the whole, you know, countryside there. And to his surprise, right, the king doesn't have any stain. I'm ruining the book for you, just in case you're worried. <laughs> it's essentially the gospel, so you knew this going in. The king doesn't have any stains. And the little boy goes, no way. And, and, and the king welcomes him in and cares for him and listens to him and ultimately heals him. And as the boy looks down in wonder at the reality that these spots and stains have been removed, he looks up. Uh, to thank the one who took them from him. And he realizes that his stains have, are now there on... He recognizes the spots, recognizes the stains, but they're now on the king himself. It, it's, a, it's a beautiful story, and there's stuff in the back even for family discussion guide and all that. In fact, let me give it away around. Anybody, anybody want it? I'm gonna, I'll tell you why I am, I'm, I'm dealing with it I'm, and I'm opening up this way. You're kind of wondering, what does this have to do with the barrel? Nobody wants this? Everybody's scared to read this to their kids? Okay, that's what I'm saying. It's amazing. Um, here's why I bring this up up front. As I was reading the story to my kids and hearing the little boys struggle with the the stains and the the spots and and the stuff that just feels wrong, right? Uh, And as I, I was kind of Pondering and kind of going along and, and, and realizing, wow, okay, there's one who sees that stuff and, and, and takes it and loves. Well, here's, here's what happened I started just bawling. Now, I was glad the lights were down low at this point. They, they couldn't see how ugly it was getting. But it was like, I started just, and I realized, man, okay, why? I, I'm, a, I'm a grown man reading a kid's book about spots, a boy named Blotch, and I'm crying. And I'm thinking, what is that all about? Well, I'll tell you what it's about. I think at least this is my interpretation. I, I know that I'm stained. I know that I'm unclean. I know that I'm broken. I know I'm not right. I feel that deep in my soul. And so the idea of finding a solution, the idea of coming to one who can love me anyways, even maybe help remove that is amazing. Amazing. There's something powerful about it because we all feel it. This little children's story was giving words and, and, and metaphor to something we all feel. That, that we're, we're yucky sometimes. We're, we're, we're not right. And we need help. We want to get it right, but we don't always know how. Sometimes we're tempted to try to hide it. We're tempted to try to pretend it doesn't exist. We're tempted to blame others, blame mom or dad or husband or wife or kids or friends or whoever you blame Trump or whatever it is. We're going to blame somebody for the stuff that's wrong with me so that I can feel better about myself. I can feel justified. I can feel right. Cause I know that I'm not. Now, there are different ways. We all feel it, and I think that's what was coming out in this book. We all feel that there's, there's stuff that's wrong, there's stains, there's stuff that's not right. But even as the book was 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 getting out, we have these different ways of trying to approach the problem. Some of them make it worse, and others—one I should say—actually makes it right. In the parable that Jesus tells us this morning, we have two of the kind of more basic approaches to getting right. Two of the more basic ways that people try to deal with this. I know that something's wrong. How do I get in the right? And these two approaches are represented by these two figures that we meet. These two individuals, the Pharisee and the tax collector. These, uh, there are two ways to try to get right or try to get justified, we could say. The first is the way of uh, what we'll call the way of the religious. And the second is what we'll call the way of the Christian the way of the Christian. Um, for each of these approaches, I'm going to look at kind of just the approach itself. What actually is he trying to do? And, 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 and we'll make some observations there. And then we'll come out with kind of looking at what's, what, what happens in the aftermath? What are the effects? What, what happens in the fallout of this approach? Um, and so we'll take those uh, one by one here. <clears throat> Forgive me. I know I sound like a frog, man, but tis the season when you have little kids. Can I get an Amen. We're sick for months until uh, until spring comes. (laughs) Uh, So the way of the religious. Verses 9 through 12 in particular. The way of the religious. Let's look at this first way. Uh, We begin here because this is really where Jesus begins in the telling of his parable. Uh, Drop down to verse 10. And let's start reading there for a moment. Two men, Jesus says, went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean, you feel it already, right? I give tithes of all that I get and it ends there, thankfully. But now what I want to do here is make a few observations. Um, Bring out a few things for you to consider about this approach, this way of the religious, uh, the religious way of trying to get right. Observation number one, he is externally clean, we could say. He's externally uh, spotless, even, we might say. Uh, That's certainly something we can't miss as we read this. In fact, the Pharisee himself will not let us miss this. That he is, as far as the law, as far as the rules, as far as externals go, he is clean, he is spotless, he is looking good. This is what forms really the substance of his prayers, if you noticed. He, he, He simply says, listen, I don't do this. I don't do that. I certainly don't do that, but I do this and I do this. And he starts listing off the stuff that he's refrained from that would be sinful and wrong. And the stuff that he's done that would be awesome, like fasting and giving and all this other things. So there's this external cleanness to him. He's, he's got, Kind of what, what 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 we saw in the um, in the first village with, with little blotch. He's got that thing going on where you're trying to hide the stains of the heart under the makeup of good deeds. Like nothing's changing inside. But from the outside, it looks great. Looks clean. Looks nice. Now, I mean, just to be clear, for those of you who haven't attempted you know, the religious sort of way of doing this, the the same thing just transfers over where to whatever it is, we know that we're not right. And so we try to get right. And a lot of times we focus on externalities to do it, uh, whether it has to do with God and religion or not. Some of us, it's like, Hey, we're going to try to, you know, you know, do, do do all the stuff we got to do to get, you know, the straight A's in school. Because that's how we're going to feel like what's broken in us is right. Or we're going to do all that we need to do to look as clean and as awesome as we can before the boss. Because that's how we feel like our life is worth something. Or maybe it literally is makeup. Like i got to get beautiful. i got to look good. i got to lose those pounds. Externally, I want to look as clean as I can so that I will feel like whatever's broken in me will be right. We're doing this all the time. We have all these different ways of approaching it. Here's the religious approach. I'm going to tell you about all the, you know, awesome stuff that I do in Jesus name. Hmm. Jesus name for yours. Now, observation number two. He is standing by himself. He's standing by himself. We read that plainly there in verse 11. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. Now that, that's important. That's an important that every detail matters when Jesus tells these stories standing by himself went on to pray. So no doubt we're supposed to assume here that this man is uh, if this were the temple and here were kind of the main altar where they would do the sacrifices thing. This man is right here. I mean, he assumes that he kind of belongs right up in the front. That's where he should be apart from all the rest, not in the back somewhere, but up in the front. Three things that I want to say about what this sort of separation implies. Uh, First, it clearly, I think, implies he thinks he's better than the rest, right? I mean, that's right on the surface of it that, hey, listen, I belong up front. I belong, you know, in the VIP section. Surely everyone knows that. Let me get up there. Take the best seat in the house. But secondly, another thing that this separation does, it showcases the sort of thing that happens when you buy into the external idea of justifying yourself and cleaning yourself up. Here's what happens. Inevitably, you have to start separating yourself from others because they're going to taint you. They're going to corrupt you. They may, they may make you not look so good. So you have to get away. So if, if your thing is, you know, hey, my life is going to be, I'll, I'll know I've made it. I'll know I'm right. If I'm smart, intelligent and other people see that, you ain't going to Hang out with dumb people, if it's the straight A's and that's what you want to get, listen, you're not going to be there with the C's and the D's. You can't be seen with those folks, lest other people think that you're as unintelligent as them. The pretty people are going to hang out with the pretty people. I'm not going to go hang out with her. Look, she's way over whatever it is, right? There's this natural separation that, that this sort of external approach to getting right uh, uh, creates. because I don't want to be tainted. By them. I don't want to be corrupted by them. So he separates himself from the rest. But then there's this other side to it, last piece I'd bring out, and that's just simply that he has this need to be seen. The idea of standing apart, standing by himself, uh, I think it's not just I think I'm better, not just I don't want to be tainted, but also because I want to be seen. I don't just want to be among the crowd. I want to be somewhere different, somewhere where I can be seen, where I can be, you know, uh, praised, where I can be adored. That's what's going on here. You, you know that you're um, <coughs> doing this sort of thing. You're falling kind of prey to the way of this Pharisee. Uh, even as a Christian following this religious way, you might say, uh, when you kind of, we've kind of mastered the art of the humble brag, right? Especially as Christians where it's not cool to brag. We know that, but we kind of master the art of what they call the humble brag, right? We're good at it. Like, here's what I mean. You just, you're in casual conversation and you just kind of let slip the fact that, ah, oh, I just actually finished up a three day fast, pretty hungry. You want to go get some lunch? You know? Oh, wow. Oh, you're holy. Wow three-day fast i haven't fasted all year sheesh or you know oh hey um, you got any good reading material yeah i just finished up what i was reading you know i just finished up the the, you know the two volumes of jonathan edwards works yeah i finished those i'm looking for something i see you guys don't even know who that is if you did if you knew what i was talking about you would know that is a massive humble brag because i'll never get through jonathan edwards works it's like this small print and they're huge you're just going to go, yeah, I'm just looking for some nice evening reading, just finished up all this stuff because I'm awesome because I'm great. Right. That, that's the idea is kind of let slip. we kind of put in there this stuff so that people can see, whoa, you are standing apart. You are in another league. There's something to be admired, something to be adored about you and kind of inviting people to see that and, and join in our own praise of our self. And I suppose that really leads to observation number three. This man, if you look carefully, really, he's praying, if you will, to himself. Now, there's, there's something, I'm going to do this a few times here, and so forgive me, but when there are certain things in the original language, the Greek that the New Testament was written in, that, that, that don't make its way into English, I like to bring it out a little bit if it's important enough. And here's an interesting one the Greek grammar underneath our text at this point, it's actually a bit ambiguous and the ESV you'll see a footnote that, that makes note of that. But the preposition uh, that's underneath here can be taken to mean either as we've just discussed, the the Pharisee stood uh, by or he stood to himself, but it could also be taken to mean, because again, it's ambiguous in the Greek. It could also mean that he prayed to himself. Now, I know that uh, probably what would be meant by that would be, oh, he prayed quietly to himself. Okay, but I couldn't help but think, man, there's there's probably a little sarcasm even in that ambiguity and even in that idea, because when you look at what he actually says, you can't miss the fact that this guy isn't talking to God at all. He's not praying to God at the end of the day. He's really ultimately just bringing adoration. And and if if you will, praying to himself, he, he mentions God, but he's not really talking to God. As one commentator puts it, I love this. He glances at God, but contemplates himself (laughs) or to put it another way, this man references, but quickly passes by God while on his way to self adoration. He says, I thank you, God, that I'm so great. Let me tell you how I'm great. You see how that just doesn't compute in terms of prayer or praise or or, or authentic engagement with God. It's just this sort of bending inward in self-adoration. He's inviting God, as it were, to come and adore him. You know that Christmas song? Oh, come, let us adore him. Did you imagine saying, Oh, come God and adore me. It's crazy. And yet that's what we see going on here. Observation number four. He is, and this is the last observation I'll bring out. He's, he's trusting in himself. He's trusting in himself. Um, This kind of wraps up what we've been looking at to this point and just brings us back really to what Jesus says plainly of our, I suppose it's Luke who makes the comment um, at the beginning. Verse nine, look at this. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now we know that the one who's in the crosshairs there is not the tax collector, but this Pharisee. He's the one who what trusted in himself that he was righteous. Like, God, you give me the law. I'll take it from there. I got this. I don't need any help. I got it. That's the mentality. This is, this is what we see at play here. Now, that's the basics of the approach. Now, what are, what are the effects? What are some of the effects that come out from this way of trying to get right? Trying to make yourself, put yourself in the right before God, before others? What are some of the effects that follow from this? Um, Interestingly, it's going to be quite shocking, quite surprising, because uh, you guys may be aware, maybe not, Pharisees in that day, they were revered for their holiness, and yet we're going to see Jesus just kind of flip this thing over on this brother. All of a sudden, it's like the the, the, the walls, the ceilings going to cave in around him. And this man who thinks he's so amazing finds himself on the other side. But I want to particularly bring out the effect that this approach has with regard to his relationship with God, with, with uh, regard to the relationship with other people as well. Effect number one, relationship with God. Um, what we see in, in verse 14 is that even though this man thinks he is all right, he ends up all in the wrong. That this self-trust, this self-justification, this let me make it happen, externally setting apart, you know, everybody look at me, uh, relying on himself, all that ends up in a mess for him. We're told that he doesn't go home justified, but... Uh, we're, we're, we're supposed to infer he instead he goes home condemned. He didn't go home exalted like he thought he would be. He, he, he went home humbled, humiliated, brought low. He missed the point of the law, you see. So God gives the law in Israel. That's, that's the sort of moral compass that, even, that every human being created in his image has in some sense in their heart. We know what's right or wrong in a basic general sense. And that's why we know things just aren't right all the time. That's why we try to justify and make ourselves right and and convince ourselves that we're cool and try to get everybody else on our side too. We know it, but God gives the law. This man misses the point. See, this man treats the law as if it were a mountain up, which he could climb to get to God when instead what we learn from the scriptures is that the law was not meant to be a mountain up which we climb, but rather a muzzle by which all mouths are silenced before a holy God. Not a mountain, but a muzzle. <laughs> I just get that from Romans three nineteen through 20. Listen to Paul as he writes this. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why, Paul? Why is the law? Why, why are we under the law? What's the purpose of the law? So that every mouth may be stopped. Muzzle. But the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It ain't a mountain. You ain't going to get up it. No human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of Sin. Now, I love what um, Matt Chandler he uses an illustration on this point that I think is, is is relevant and helpful. He says the law, in many ways, is like an MRI machine. Okay, MRI machine exposes what is wrong in you. You see that. So the law was to do. What did Paul say? The law through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law as an MRI machine exposes what is wrong with you. But here's the problem. We sometimes treat it like it can fix us. Like it's the way to getting right. Like we need the law. We climb up it, and we're going to be cool. But no, the law an MRI machine can't fix you. It can only expose what's wrong with you and then send you out with that knowledge towards the only thing that truly can fix you. you. You following me? No, nobody's following me. Everyone's just <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's the idea. And this man said, "No, no, it's a mountain. It's a ladder. I'm climbing. I got it. It's fixed. I, I could do this. Don't don't harm, Don't shame me. I got it." Law wasn't meant to do that at all. In fact, it did just bring out more sin in him. He doesn't even know it. It exposes. It's meant to lead you. With that knowledge towards the one who can help. This is why Paul elsewhere Galatians 324 says the law was our teacher until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith in him. It was intended to instruct to show you your sin to show you your need to show you your inability so that you would go to him for justification you'd give up on the law and you'd go to christ that's the point the law was not meant to lead you to self-righteousness but rather to christ for righteousness but this man missed it and so often we do too so often we do too Effect number two, with regard to relationship with others and what you see coming out this, if you'd go back up with me to verse nine, I want to show you this because this is a, this is how the parable begins. And, uh, Luke again is kind of tipping his hand towards the real, the, the point here. And, and there's some important in, interpretive information. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with Contempt. So here's what we find. Uh, Those people who trust in themselves that they were righteous find themselves not only at odds with God. They are not right. They are in the wrong before him. They actually find themselves at odds with others as well. This isn't just kind of a a disconnected, you know, couple of observations about things. These two are connected. Those who trust in themselves will inevitably, will necessarily look upon others, treat others with contempt. You have to. If you're trusting in yourselves for righteousness, you have to pin yourself against other people. You're going to need to do it to uphold uh, uh, your sense of justification. Now, think about this with me. There are two reasons why trusting in self really leads to um, contempt for others, at least as far as I could see. The first is, well, okay, if you think you did get right, if you think trusting in yourself you did get right like this man did, well, then naturally you're going to look down on those who, who can't get to where you are. If you think I earned it, I did it. And you're naturally going to look at everyone why can't you? What's wrong with you? You're pathetic. If I could do it, so could you. Come on. What's the problem? And you're going to look down on them. Because I did it. It's my achievement. But the other reason that you're going to treat others with contempt, and this one is a bit more interesting, I think. It, there's, this, there's this thing kind of hidden a bit deeper down in our hearts where, honestly... If we're willing to talk about it, we're insecure, trusting in ourselves for righteousness. There's this sort of insecurity that comes along with it. Even though it presents itself as pride, it presents itself as confidence. Ha, I'm better. I got it, it underneath it. If you probe a little bit, why do you need to do the humble brag? Why do you need to drop that in there? What, what do you gain from that? You know, I mean, we share these things because we're worried people aren't going to see it. Because we kind of feel a little insecure and afraid that we're not all that right. And we need other people to join in and telling us we are. We're always having to make the case because we don't feel it's fully been settled. Hearing that? So you're, you're always going to have to uh, uh, um, parade and, and, and uh, um, exaggerate your accomplishments over and against others. And you're always going to be on the lookout for why other people aren't as good because the only way you know you stack up and you're justified is how you compare to them. So inevitably, because of this insecurity, as you're trusting in yourself and it's not stable, it's going to lead to contempt for others. And this is what this is the irony of the whole thing. So the guy who thinks he's right ends up completely in the wrong. And the guy who 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 would say, yeah, uh, you know, I am uh, a good person or whatever it is actually is the one who's becoming more and more a monstrous person in his relationships with others. That's what makes this whole thing so, so tragic and ironic. As he thinks he's climbing up, he is just spiraling. Down, so there 's got to be another way um, and thanks be to God, there is it 's the way of what i 'd call the way, the way of the Christian. And here we come to verses thirteen and fourteen now, so this way of the the Pharisee, the way of the religious, it stands in contrast now to the way of this tax collector. Um, We look at verse 13 here, and and I I want you to to see this. Um, The tax collector standing far off. Here's his approach to getting right. (laughs) The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. you're already starting to see the the difference, I think. But let me bring out really four kind of corresponding uh, observations, four related observations to the one kind of ones I brought out for the Pharisee. But you'll see the contrast. You'll see how different this really is. Observation number one. He is externally a mess. This man is a mess. The other man put on a great show. He was a sight to behold. This man was a sight to behold, too, you could say. But not in the sort of way that you would want, right? He's drawing attention, perhaps, but not the sort of attention that any of us would think desirable. We read it there, you know, he's he's beating his breast, verse 13. He may be making a scene but it's 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 this sort of what that is is it's a sign of grief it's a sign of sorrow it's a sign of contrition it's it's humiliating and yet there he is he can't even hide it just making a scene looking like a mess looking unkept his stuff all over snot nose whatever it may be just look, you know if, if you're walking in with your kid whatever it is you kind of he's the kind of guy if you see him there you kind of go hey Little ones, look away. Come over here. We don't know what that guy... You're gossiping with your friends. What did that guy do? What's up with that dude? Maybe he's off his rocker. I'm not quite sure. He's making a scene. He's getting attention, perhaps, but not the sort of attention you and I would ever want. He is externally a train wreck, it would seem. This, of course, is... Comfort for those of us who feel like our lives are train wrecks, (laughs) who feel like we're a mess, who feel unkept. And you kind of buy into that lie that church is for the people who are clean. No, no, no. That is to miss entirely what Jesus says here. Yes, will Christians, will religious people kind of go that route Yes, they did it in Jesus' day. That's what the Pharisees did. They took God's truth and they twisted it to make it a means of self-justification and others' you know, condemnation. But Jesus' heart is coming out plainly here. That's not the religion he established. That's not the faith he's after. That's not the community he's trying to build. The community he's building is one where the the, the, the broken... That the snot-nosed, the messy can come in and find safety, find love, find a place to belong. He would say elsewhere that these are the sorts of people who are closer to the kingdom than the externally clean. They're one step removed. Okay, I should say the, 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 the filthy are one step removed. They know they're desperate. They're just looking for that solution. That the clean are two steps removed. That they don't even yet think that they're dirty. I am the solution, baby. Right? They've got to first be broken, brought to this step, and then they'll start looking for salvation in God. Mercy. They're closer to the king. If you feel like your life is right, you feel like a mess. Listen to me. Jesus would say, you're welcome here. And you're just right on the fringe of the kingdom, man. Observation number two. (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to make this. Hold on. Sorry. Thank you. You know what? It's a good thing. I usually feel guilty when my family gets sick and then I don't. I feel like I wasn't being a good dad. I wasn't wasn't wiping enough snotty noses. You know what I mean? Like, darn. Megan got sick, not me. I was like, yeah, I was doing my stuff anyways. Sorry, (laughs) I'm justified. (laughs) Observation number two, (laughs) he is standing at a distance. He is standing at a distance. Now, here's again an interesting contrast, because just like the other man, just like the Pharisee who was standing apart from the others, this man also is standing at a distance. And yet, we're to understand it's a completely different sort of thing that's going on here. It's not standing up front, you know, kind of pushing his way to the VIP section. This is standing at a distance far off in the back. He's taking up the back. He's like, "I, I don't even know if I should be in the building. I'll just kind of be that wallflower back here. See what's going on. He's standing far off, we read. Now, there's a detail Again, I'm, I'm sorry, I am going to do this a few times because I just thought all of these observations were meaningful. There's a detail, again, that doesn't come out in the English translation that's pretty awesome. And that is, in the Greek, when this man says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The, 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 the ESV translates it, a sinner. But in the Greek, there's a definite article there, which means he's really saying, literally, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. The sinner. Now, that has a different ring to it. And, and I, I bring this up here because I think that's part of the separation piece of like, man, I am the sinner. I'm not just a sinner among a crowd of sinners. I am the sinner. Like, it, it has the sort of nuances to it that you get uh, in First Timothy one fifteen, where Paul talks about himself being the chief of sinners. You know, I am a sinner. You know, I am foremost. I am the first in a way that you don't want to be. I am the sinner. You see, the the, the idea is this man refuses to take consolation in the fact that he is a sinner among many. Instead, he goes, listen, I don't know about your heart, but I know about mine. I I, I don't know where I stand in the pecking order of things and the hierarchy of who's more righteous than who. All I know is I'm pretty sure I'm at the bottom I am the sinner. That, this is just an exchange between Him and God in these moments. There's no one else. You think when you stand before the holiness of God, you're be going, "Ah, but I'm a, little, I'm a little less stained than that person, a little less stained than that." No, you're just going, oh, "Forgive me, the sinner. This is an exchange between him and God. It doesn't matter if anyone else is around at this point. That's why he doesn't care if he looks crazy, beating on his breast, crying out. The sinner. A lot of times, you and I do take consolation in the fact that we're just kind of a sinner among a lot of sinners. We say things like, "Ah, you know, I'm just human. Everybody's doing it, right?" We 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 console ourselves with these things, but this man refuses to go there, and we should refuse to go there too. Who cares if? You're human who cares if everyone's doing it if the stuff that we're doing the stuff that humanity is doing is the stuff of devils. The fact that all of us the crowds are doing it should not lead us to console ourselves and have comfort. It should actually lead us into deeper grief like the stuff you read about in Daniel and Nehemiah. They're just grieving what's going on all around them and in their own heart. So he refuses to be. Consoled instead he just says, "God, be merciful, be merciful to me, the sinner, and he sees himself in, in a different legal oh, i'll just be out here. He's standing at a distance. Observation number three: he is praying towards heaven. he's praying towards heaven. Um, now, I, I say it like this to, to make a point because I know technically in the text. The detail is this man would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. The detail is he, he, he won't even lift up his eyes. Why am I saying he's praying towards heaven? Well, because here's why I think this man's actually are, are the only prayers that actually get there. <laughs> the other man thinks that the, you know, the, the, the clouds have parted and heaven is looking in and it says he you know, eloquently you know, delivers his prayer of, of self-adoration and, 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 and it doesn't even get past the ceiling. God hears not a word. But then this man, too ashamed, to even lift up his eyes to heaven and his words, his cry for mercy goes straight into the heavenly courts. Straight to the throne, and God is on that man's prayer it 's the sort of thing we see in in isaiah sixty six two This is the one to whom I will look. God says, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. all the pomp and the thing i don't even see it the whole The whole temple complex may be infatuated and amazed by that guy. I don't even see it. Here's the one I notice. The guy in the back that everyone's scooting away from because he seems off and odd. I'm on him. He's praying towards heaven. Observation number four. He is trusting in not himself, but God and his mercy alone. So this man has given up on himself long ago. The other man is still infatuated. Can't get over himself. This man g- gave up on it long ago. I'm done thinking that I could climb up the law. Thinking that I could make things right. Thinking that I have the power within me. And this is, this is how some guy was asking me my, about details in my testimony in the back there before we got going. And th- this is what he often has to do. When, he's, when God is coming at your heart. And he, you, know, you know because your life starts going horribly wrong. <laughs> because because he's trying to expose the certain idols and things, certain self righteousness stuff that we got going on and stuff starts falling apart. And you go, wait, what? I guess for me, it was, I guess I'm not in control. I guess I'm not that awesome. And he breaks you down to where you got nowhere else to go. But him, that's where this man is. He's trusting in God and his mercy alone. Not my merits, but your mercy. And, There's something interesting about this, because even though we read that this man is standing far off, even though we get that this man goes, wow, you are holy and I am the sinner. Right. Even though we see him kind of not even being willing to look up to heaven because he feels like I'm too low. There is this strange confidence that he has that even still God will welcome him. That's why he's there. That's why he's praying. That's awesome. He's caught it. He understands what the law was really all about, which is, you notice, I mean, God gives the law, but then he also gives these sacrifices and these things so that you could to get right when you can't uphold the law. God is not only holy and rigidly so, he is also merciful. He is not only one who, man, we better not dare touch that mountain lest he break out against us and die, but also one who says, draw near to me. But by way of sacrifice. I'm merciful. It cries out for mercy. And here's the last seminary lesson I'm going to give you for the morning. You're welcome. Hidden in the Greek behind the English. This is this is probably the most important thing I'll say all day. In the Greek language and all over the New Testament and the Greek Old Testament, there is a perfectly good word for mercy. Mercy. Okay, it's the word that's customarily used all the time for things like mercy. In our text, this man uses a word that is much more specialized. Helaskam It's a word that immediately connects and would have connected any of the listeners back to the Old Testament. And, And it's a word group that comes from the Day of Atonement. And the stuff that surrounded the day of atonement. It's not just mercy in general. It's this idea of atonement. And it's related. It's related to what uh, was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Let me briefly. This is going to be quick. It's going to be too quick for some of you. I know. But um, the mercy seat was the lid to the Ark of the Covenant that rested in the most holy place of the tabernacle and temple. OK, the mercy seat was this lid and, 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 and the most holy place was a place you wouldn't dare go. No, no general Israelite. No, you're not walking in there. You're not going there. Even the high priest could only go there once a year He'd only go there once a year. And that's because the Lord commanded. Otherwise, he wouldn't dare go either. And when he went in, what he would do is he would take the blood of the sacrifices that had been made on that day of atonement, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. God said he would meet with his people there. He would meet uh, with them there. And by uh, putting the blood on that seat, it was basically God's way of saying, listen, here's how I, a holy God, I'm going to continue to dwell among sinners. There needs to be sacrifice. There needs to be payment for all that's wrong. And in by means, by way of that, I will show Mercy. I will continue to dwell in your midst and you can continue to come towards me. So when this man says, God, be merciful, here's what's awesome. He's not just saying, God, can you please slacken your, your standards a bit? Can you please sweep some of your, you know, my stuff under the rug and just kind of forget it ever happened? He is saying, God, make atonement for me. God make propitiation for me. God, there needs to be blood sacrifice, blood blood a sprinkle of, of, of a substitutionary sacrifice for me. If I'm going to be forgiven, if you're gonna show me mercy, it's gonna come by way of atonement. By way of sacrifice, by way of, we're not just sweeping things under the rug. We're putting my sins on another and justice is being exacted from that sacrifice, not from me. That's the sort of thing he's conjuring up here when he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The only way for me to get right is if someone pays for all that's wrong. And this, of course, foreshadows and prepares us to understand and to see the cross of Christ. Which is why, interestingly enough, the only other time in the New Testament, that the verb form that shows up here in our text appears. It's in Hebrews 2.17. And it's talking about the ministry of Jesus as our high priest. Talking about what he does for his people. It says this, therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Now, here's the word to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the idea is that Jesus knows what he's doing as he tells this parable. He's linking to this whole Old Testament history that prepared. It was intended to prepare the people for his arrival and not just his arrival, but his death. That here is the way sinners get right. Like the story of Bloch. Here's the way. Don't just sweep it under a rug or take a pill or, or or get an education or fix politics. No, no, no. It's take my stains and put them on another and let him pay. And let his purity, his righteousness, his perfection come to me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that we in him might become the righteousness of God. He gets my sin. I get his righteousness. That's how sinners get justified. That's how we get right. That's how you stop playing the game of I got to keep going and keep upholding and keep, you know, resting on yourself is so unstable. But Christ's righteousness is as stable as a rock. And when God raises him up from the dead, I want you to understand that is your incorruptible foundation. There's no shaking. There is no stumbling. There is a... You are standing on Christ. You are standing before God. Unstained. Unblemished. Holy. Pure. That's why you're called, if you're a Christian, saints in the New Testament. Hagias, Holy. It's amazing. Not because you're awesome and you're just great, but because He is. And you're in Him. And all that's His has been credited to your account. All that's yours... Been given to him the effect what's the effect that this has on relationship with God the relationship with others come out and just end here because again it's going to be surprising uh, tax collectors Pharisees if they were the ones who were kind of revered for their righteousness and holiness tax collectors they were disdained As collaborators with Rome, uh, as notoriously dishonest, uh, they were despised. And yet it's the tax collector here who who walks out clean, who walks out right. Everything's been flipped. With regard to God, we see that he is the one who is justified. Look at verse 14. Uh, This man, we're told, went down to his house justified rather than the other Here's where we come really face to face with that great doctrine of the Reformation, justification by faith alone, or to fill it out, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Meaning, long story short, you can't get right before God. It's all by grace and you receive what Christ has done through faith. You look at him and say, he was perfect. He was righteous. I'm not. He he, he is the one who died in my place. It's his blood on the mercy seat so that I can come before a holy God and feel in my guts that I'm right. Not because I am, but because he is. Him. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When you get that... It changes everything. When you get that, it changes everything. You get that God, you didn't get to Him by climbing up some mountain. But instead, you got to Him because He came down. Like When that settles on you, it changes you. It's exhausting trying to climb up. It's exhausting looking for another solution that leads you to the same dead end. It's exhausting playing the game, trying to compete, looking down the, the self-trust and the, the others, you know, condemning and, and, and looking upon them with contempt. It's, it, 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 it's horrible. And it's amazing when you realize what Christmas really is, which is God looks down at a sinful people and says, OK, listen, you're not coming up to me. I am coming down to you. Luther talked about when he got this doctrine, we understood that it's not on the basis of his works that he's right. He said, "It felt as if I was walking through the gates of paradise when that just dawned on me that it's no longer on me. John Bunyan, when he got this doctrine, said, man, it's like chains fell off of my arms. I rose up and I was free. Because it's so heavy to try to make what's wrong right in your own strength. If you don't feel it now, you're too young or whatever, you will soon. It's heavy. All of a sudden you go, Christ comes down, grace not works. Amazing. I'm right before God. I don't care where I stand before others. His is the final word everything changes and you want to know what else everything changes in your relationship with others as well. And not just with God, are you justified, but in your relationship with others as well? See, cause here's what happens. You remember what I said? When you, when you, when you're relying on yourself, you got to kind of, you got to look down on others cause you did it and you're going to c- compete with them because you got to make sure you always kind of look better. But when you're saved, when you're justified by grace through faith in Christ, man, there's no one else to look down on. you're, We've said it often here. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no one beyond the scope of his mercy. And you know, you didn't do it. And so you just call sinners as, as wild and crazy and drug addicted and sex addicted and whatever money. Addicted. Come. It doesn't matter. There's no, he will not cast out any who comes. You hear that? I mean, that, that's the point. It's grace. No works. You're not looking down and you're also not competing anymore you got nothing to prove anymore. Jesus proved it when he died and rose for you. God will vindicate you on that last day. Not because you're awesome, but because his son is. So it's not a competition anymore. You don't need to be seen and make sure other people know why they stink and you're great. You just want Jesus to be seen. I'll leave you with... A quote here from John Trapp, an English Puritan from the I think, uh, 17th century. that really sums this up. You're not going to probably get it first time through, so I put it on your handout as well in the bottom. But he says this, God casts away many in anger for their supposed goodness, but none for their confessed badness. The basic idea is none of your goodness can commend you to God like this Pharisee thought and none of your badness can can condemn you before him. We often think the doors are shut for me sinner like me. None of your goodness can commend you to him. None of your badness can condemn you before him. All that matters is where do you stand in relation to Jesus? The one who alone is good and the one who died for all your bad. That's the way let's pray. God, thank you uh, for the son. Thank you for the gift of Jesus, the gift of grace that comes to us in him. We stand in awe that we are on that foundation. Jesus. If there are people in this room this morning who are still trying the other ways, whether it's the way of the religious and whether it's trying to hide or deny or fix some other way or blame God, I pray that they would come into the rest they would, come, uh, they, would, they would leave the, the heavy burdens and come under the light yoke of Christ. And find rest for their weary souls in his righteousness. Amen.